Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We've been talking about prayer this summer. Uh, We've been doing a series we opened up in Matthew 6, and we talked about how we pray like Jesus and how we pray like Jesus taught us to pray. And then we looked at Acts chapter 4, and we talked about praying like the early disciples in the early church and, and, and saw kind of the confidence that comes through prayer. And this morning, we want to turn to Psalm 6, where we see where we're going to pray like David. wonder how many of you have had a doctor's visit recently. You know, the doctor, the one you entrust your health to, the one you tell all of your deepest, darkest secrets to, the one you talk about your patterns of living with. I remember going once to a doctor and sitting there and I'm saying, I feel like my my heart is just beating out of my chest at night. And she said, well, how much caffeine do you drink each day? And I said, I don't want to talk about it. She knew, she pinpointed exactly where the issue was, right? Go to a dentist and we talk to our dentist about our habits of eating and drinking and how much pop do you drink each day? Again, I don't want to talk about it, right? See, what a, a doctor or a dentist or a medical professional seeks to do is this, this kind of pattern, right? They look for symptoms, and they hear these symptoms back from you. Uh, they determine a cause, an underlying kind of situation that's happening with you medically, and then they give you a, a series of treatment or some type of, 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 of system of addressing the issue, or at least that's how it works in my mind of someone who's never worked in the medical field, right? See, this morning, as we approach Psalm 6, David presents us a number of symptoms that he's experiencing. He presents us a number of things, situations that are going on in his life. He's experiencing this spiritual and physical and emotional and relational turmoil, and he's turning to God for help as this great physician. But it's also worth noting that by the end of the psalm, David has a cure. See, our work this morning is to kind of tap into what David is telling us about his experience with the Lord and find how we might frame our life in this way. What symptomatic state can, that we have right now can be pushed into an area of healing because of the Lord's intervention? I want to be careful here this morning. Let's talk about symptoms and healing and all of these other things. I'm not implying that you can overcome your physical limitations, that if you're uh, a diabetic or whatever else, that the Lord's going to heal you. That's not what we're talking about at all. What we're talking about is spiritual realities that have physical ramifications. And we'll talk about that as we dive into our text. But here's our big idea overall. Knowing that God graciously hears our prayers, restores our confidence before others. Knowing that God graciously hears our prayers restores our confidence before others. It's like as you stand in front of so many other people, your enemies, your friends, whoever else it might be, when we are restored with the Lord in in prayer and in confession, we might find ourselves more confident. We're going to see this in three different phases. First, we're going to see David's plea or his prayer, uh, grace and deliverance in verses 1 through 5. We're going to see David's weeping in verses 6 through 7, it's constant and weakening. And then David's confidence in verses 8 through 10 
that God hears. Let's dive in this morning with our first point, David's plea, grace and deliverance, verses one through five. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in, the, in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? See, David starts out and he asks for grace in the midst of his trouble. And he gives us this kind of layout, in case you're not familiar with poetry or you're not a Shakespeare fan or whatever else. He starts off with a couple different couplets in verses one and two. These ideas, they match one another, right? So, oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. It's the same idea, right? Verse two, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. The same idea. So we have these couplets. And both of these sets of couplets speak to the same thing, David's essential need of grace. He asks God in verse 1 not to discipline him, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. You ever have a child that you find in some level of disobedience, and when you catch them right ha- red-handed, they're, they're saying, no, 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 don't discipline me, don't do this, don't ground me, don't spank me, do whatever, don't do those things, right? This is David calling out to God, pleading with his heavenly Father not to discipline him any longer. Verse 2, he asks God not just to not discipline him, but to give him grace or mercy. This term used in verse 2, be gracious to me, is, is like one who stoops down to talk to a, a lesser person. It's like when Ryan talks to me, like he looks me in the eye, he has to stoop down, right? He's condescending to speak to someone. God is showing grace. He's asking for this grace or this mercy. Notice also that David addresses both his physical and his spiritual reality as troubled in these verses. Look at verse 2. He says, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Like the inside of me is like mush. I feel like I just, I'm melting inside. It's not just that. In verse 3, he says, my soul also is greatly troubled. So it's not just my physical sickness in my stomach. It's like my strength is sapped. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just melting in my conviction of my sin. Maybe you've had that experience in your life. You've performed something. You've done something. And you just get this knot in your stomach. You feel so incredibly guilty about the thing you've done. Let's not act like it's only a few of us in this room. Every one of us has this conscience. And when we violate that conscience, God has given us a natural response in ourselves that our our gut feels like mush. Our strength is taken away. And the deepest we need, we have in that moment is to address this issue with grace from God. David's describing this. See, fundamentally, what David is doing is he's coming to God with his needs. He sees that that God is angry with him, that he's disciplining him, that he's uh, upset with him because of his action. And he sees that his bones and his body and his soul are weak. So he's asking God for grace. God, I need grace. But then what happens in verse 3 is he breaks out of his couplets. 
All right, everything's kind of flowing along. Rebuke me not in your anger. Discipline me. Gracious, heal me. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? It's like he just jars us out of the rhythm of this passage because he's asking God a question. How long? How long am I going to stay in this state? How long is it going to be like this? Someone has has made the point about Christianity that it's the only one whose holy book comes to a holy God with questions like these. How long? How long will I suffer, Lord? How long is this going to go on? In fact, as you read the Psalms, you see this question asked time and time again. Lord, how long are you going to submit me or subject me to this suffering? How long are you going to expose me to this weakness? To Christianity, uh, Judaism to some degree, they are those that deal plainly with the expressions that we face, with the emotions that we face. And here's the psalmist, David, crying out, how long? Now, he gives us more information in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. It's a life and death issue for David here. This isn't just a, a quiet conviction of sin. There's some ramification going on for his life that he feels in physical danger. Then in verse 5, he goes on and he says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Again, he's feeling the physical frailty of his life. But most notable in verse 4 is his prayer, Turn, O Lord. David's calling on the Lord to return, to, to turn away from his anger, to turn away from his discipline, to turn away from that heavy hand that he's pressing, pressing down on David. See, the symptom that we see here is this spiritual and physical upset that David has. It's like David's going to the physician, the doctor, and he's saying, you don't understand, I've got this like oppression. I, I feel like I'm just wax inside and I'm melting. It's like my strength is taken away. I feel like I'm on the verge of death. And it's worth recognizing here this morning that sin can have bodily symptoms. First of all, sin was the cause of death, right? We talk about this all the time, but Genesis chapter 3, it's like God gave Adam and Eve warning. They said, if in the day that you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely, what, die, right? And then in Genesis 3, they take of it and they eat of it and they don't immediately die. But what does God say to them? He says to Adam in his curse, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, he says, from dust you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See, by the nature of their sin, it led to death. But our unconfessed sin also has bodily harm. In Psalm 32, if you were just to kind of turn a couple pages over into Psalm 32, David again is describing when he had unconfessed sin, his bones wasted away, his strength dried up. It was like God was pressing his hand down upon David. He felt the physicality of his sin. See, what it shows us is that the soul and the body are linked in ways that we don't fully understand. It's like they, they're connected in ways that we don't understand all of the things that are going on. So when, when you have a, a cancer, 
You might also have an anxiety, a spiritual problem. You have a physical problem like cancer. You might also have a spiritual problem like anxiety. But when you have a spiritual problem of anxiety, it can also call, cause physical tumors to form in your stomach. It's like all of these things are just enmeshed in such a way. The wires are crossed so that we're just a big ball of need. In Psalm 6, David's describing the turmoil of his spiritual problem. Problem's obviously physical. Strength languishes. He asks for healing in verse 2. He's concerned about death in verses 4 and 5. But first, his problem is spiritual. He calls upon God to refrain from discipline, to turn, and to heal. In this particular instance, David's problem is a spiritual problem, which he ties to physical difficulties. Now, that's not always the case. So let's be careful before we start attributing disease and sickness to sinfulness. In fact, there's an interesting thing that happens in John chapter 9 where the disciples and Jesus are walking along and there's this man who is born blind. And the disciples say to him, say, Jesus, who, was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's a theological question, right? Opposing it to the Lord and Savior. And listen to what John, Jesus says in response in John chapter 9, verse 3. It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus gives us an instance where there's physical disease that's tied to no sin of their own that caused it. But we do know that some of our sins lead to physical diseases, right? We see uh, if you drink hard a lot, you're going to have liver problems later in life, most likely. If you have sex outside of God's design, you open yourself to all kinds of diseases. You, there's lots of physical ramifications for our spiritual life. And so there's not a natural uh, A plus B equals C always, you know, e always equals the outcome. But there are things that should be, we should be aware of that cause our, our sins cause physical ramifications in our body. Notice, this isn't the only problem that David faces, though. As we turn to verses 6 and 7, uh, we see that he has this plea for grace and deliverance, but we also see that he's got this emotional state of upset in verses 6 through 7. Look at what he says. He says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. The first thing we see is that David is weary of weeping each night. Consider the picture that he gives us. He's crying so much that his bed is floating on his tears. And because David's body is languishing in verse 2, and his soul is troubled in verse 3, he is emotionally distraught. But verse 7 gives us even more information. First, David describes his tears that his eyes are wasting away. He's uh, kind of figuratively, figuratively cried his eyes out. That's the kind of language that's being used there. But more noticeably, in the latter half of the verse, he says that all of this is because of all his foes. But David has a people problem. David's enemies are the cause of this particular grief. You think about David's life, right? David had all kinds of foes. He had all kinds of enemies. 
David had enemies within the kingdom and outside the kingdom. He had enemies outside the kingdom like Goliath, the big giant man that wanted to kill him. He had enemies inside the kingdom like, you know, King Saul, the most powerful man in the nation. David had a lot of pressure on him. He had a lot of people that wanted to kill him. It can be hard for us, kind of in our 21st century uh, post or Christian life, to kind of envision what it is for us to have enemies, to diagnose what is an enemy for us today. There are those who oppose the kingdom of God. They, they make themselves kind of staunchly opposed to what God wants to do in the world, and we would see those people as enemies. There are also just people who just don't like us, right? You ever have that? You're at work, and this guy just doesn't like you. Sometimes it has to do with your character. Sometimes it has to do with your personality. But at the end of the day, they just don't like you. You have enemies, whether you're willing to recognize it or not. David is envisioning a time when those enemies are starting to gather like vultures. As David weeps for God's intervention, it would seem that these enemies of David are anticipating his demise. We just need to stop here and just consider David's situation. Like David's kind of uh, cloistered about this. He's not real uh, forthcoming about the particular scenario that we're in. But what we can draw together is that he has a spiritual issue. So he calls out for grace. He has a physical issue and he feels weakness in his bones. And he has a social issue because his enemies are gathering. And on top of all that, he has an emotional issue. David's feeling this pressure spiritually, physically, socially, emotionally. The second symptom here that we see from David is that he has this emotional upset in the face of his enemies. It reminds us that sin has social ramifications too, doesn't it? When we sin, when we violate God's purpose, it affects the way we relate with one another. Let's go back to Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, one of the first things they started to do was blame one another. Lord, it's not my fault. It's, it's the woman you put here with me. After Jacob's fight with Laman in Genesis, he was so fearful of the people of Shechem. In Judges, when uh, the tribe of Gen Benjamin rapes and kills this woman, it causes division amongst the 12 tribes. When Elijah is convinced that all of Israel has bowed the knee to Baal, he runs and hides in a cave. See, our sin separates us from God, but it also separates us from one another. Paul Tripp says this, he says, sin is fundamentally antisocial because sin causes me to love me more than anything else and to care for me more than anything else. This morning, if we're in sin, if we're pursuing patterns of sin, we are fundamentally antisocial. We have a social problem in our sin. It's no coincidence here that David has a spiritual problem and fear of his enemy. These two things, they go hand in hand, don't they? It's like our sin just kind of multiplies its blindness. There's been times in life where uh, I'll sit down with someone who's in the midst of their sin, and it's fascinating every time I have these opportunities to find the logic that they use, 
They say things like, I know the affair is wrong, but God wants me to be happy. I, I know that this pattern is wrong, but I, I just, I feel like I have to be true to myself. These statements are fundamentally antisocial. They're illogical. See, our sin makes us foolish and our foolishness makes us paranoid. There's this story in 1 Samuel 18 where uh, David comes back from winning this victory and they start chanting in the crowd and the crowd says, you know, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And, and Saul overhears this and it starts him on this trajectory of jealousy. And within a couple of verses, he's already ready to throw the spear at David to murder him in cold blood. That sin multiplied and compounded upon itself until it took over this person. But I love what happens in verse 8. Everything changes in verse 8. David speaks with this new confidence. It's, it's interesting to see how many times the psalmist starts off with questions and then concludes the psalm with a restated faithfulness to God. And here in this psalm, it starts off with a lots of questions, lots of statements about David's life and his emotional state. And then there's this restatement of confidence in verses 8 through, eight through 10, where God hears. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. First, David directs the wicked to go away in verse 8. We're left to kind of assume that when he's talking about foes in verse 7 and the wicked in verse 8, he's talking about the same group of people. And so those foes that were pressing in on him, those foes that were kind of surrounding him like the vultures, now he's telling them to go away. And the question is, on what basis has David's perspective changed? What is it in David that changed everything? Well, look at what happens in verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. See, he makes these three statements that has changed his fortune. God has heard him. God has seen him. God is aware of what's happening with David. I want to just draw attention to what's happening here with the structure. I know I do this kind of nerdy stuff with you all the time, but I just want to draw attention to this, that when he's talking about his weeping, that's what he just described in verses 6 and 7. So it's kind of he's kind of turned that concept around. The Lord has heard my weeping or the sound of my weeping. And then in verse 9, he says, the Lord has heard my plea. Well, that's what he's describing in verses 4 and 5. Uh, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me uh, for the sake of your steadfast love. For in the death or in death, there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? And then his prayer is in verses 1 through 3. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. What's the cause of David's confidence? God heard him. God heard him. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward, actually. The truth is that David's prayer, as recorded in the psalm, has been heard by God, and that's his confidence. 
he asked for grace, and God has met him with grace. He asked for the this, this cease of discipline, and God has ceased to discipline him. See, David describes then in verse 10 his enemy's future, and this is also the root of his confidence. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, notice that this is future tense. This hasn't happened yet. David's saying in confidence that someday God will judge, God will bring justice to these wicked men. So depart from me because your day is coming. God's heard my prayer, and I'm sure that I will not be a part of that judgment. Notice how good of a position, how good of a physician God is to David. We saw David's symptoms. He was spiritually, physically, emotionally, socially problematic. We see God's treatment in this answered prayer and this renewed steadfast love from God. We haven't discerned what was the cause of David's difficulty. If we're going to be good physicians now, we've got to get down to brass tacks and talk about what is it that caused David's difficulty here? What's unsatisfying this morning because I'm not sure we get a great answer. In the midst of writing this psalm, God shows us David's situation, and he shows us the outcome. But David's essential need is kind of hidden underneath the layers of what David writes. If we look at Psalm 6, verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, verse 4. Save me for the sake of what? Your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness. See, laced within all of this passage is David's need of grace, mercy, kindness from God. God's grace is the medicine for deep, desperate sinners. God's grace is the medicine for desperate sinners. Notice how David prays. He knows his need. He asks God to turn. Uh, He he says, turn from your relent of your wrath and stop disciplining me. He asks God to be gracious in verse 2. He's just a man made desperate by his sin. It's the question we have in front of us this morning, right? Are you desperate because of your sin? Have you ever thought that the pressures in your life are put there by a loving, almighty God who beckons you to turn to him? To turn away from your inherent self-reliance and instead, through desperate prayer and need, to turn to him for grace? What if your physical problems are a means for God to meet you with his grace? What if your lingering pangs of guilt are a means of God to meet you with his grace? What if your social upset with your family, your friends, or your neighbors is a means of God to meet you with your grace? See, our need isn't always bad. Sometimes it's the way that God grabs our attention. Like he puts his hands on both sides of our face and makes us look him in the eye. 
And what happens is David is confident in this grace to be able to vocalize this before the Lord. Look at what he has laced into his prayer. He says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. In verse 4, he's banking on God's covenant faithfulness, the promises that he made to Abraham, the promises that he's made to Noah, the promise that he made to Adam when he said that, hey, uh, I'm going to send one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. The promise that he would make to David, that one would sit on his throne for all eternity. David is banking upon these promises and saying, God, you are faithful to your promise. You are faithful to your loving promise that you have given to your people. Therefore, meet me with your grace. See, for us this morning, God turns from his wrath at our sin to grace because of the death of Jesus. Jesus initiated a new promise with us. In Matthew 26, he says, you know, hey, um, you're not going to eat of this bread of the kingdom or this wine of the, of, of the fruit of the vine, excuse me, until I eat it anew with you. But right before that, he says, take eat. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of the covenant. Jesus strikes a new covenant with his people wherein he will meet them with grace, not based upon the good deeds that they've done or the the good works that they've performed, based solely upon his performance at Calvary where he laid down his life where he went into a tomb, where he came out victoriously because of that action on Jesus's response, I pray with confidence, Lord, meet me with grace. Meet me in my physical need with your grace. Meet me in my spiritual need with your grace. Meet me in my relational need with your grace. Meet me in the depths of my emotion with your grace so that I can navigate this life by faith in the promise that you've given me. See, what happens, the outcome of this life or this banking on the promise of God is right there in verse 10 or in verse 8, excuse me, depart from me, all you workers of evil. There's a confidence before his enemies because God made a promise. Verse 10, all my enemies shall be ashamed. They shall turn back. You know what's amazing about that verse? We didn't, I forgot to bring it out earlier. Everything that David experienced, his trouble, in verses 2 and 3, now his enemies have in verse 10. And when David called upon the Lord to turn in verse 4, guess who's turning back in verse 10? All of the trouble that was brought upon him, it's a reversal of fortune brought back against his enemies. question before us this morning is this, are you desperate? I wonder if I might differentiate between those who are here this morning. There are those who are in Christ who would claim to be Christians themselves, people who know Jesus and have walked with Jesus, and there are people who haven't claimed to know Jesus or aren't in Jesus. So non-Christian, the person who doesn't claim to know Christ. Are you desperate? God's mercy comes to those who need it. Are you in need of undeserved favor from God? Sometimes we have this 
thing that happens, right? We've got these magic squares in our pockets and we've got Google and we say, hey, Google, and we ask a question and we have an answer. It's like, we think of ourselves like gods. We have control of every domain of our life, it feels like. All of our technology gives us this kind of lie that we can control everything around us. It's hard for us to feel desperate sometimes, isn't it? There's something you can't control. It's this state of your spiritual life before God. You're out of control of that situation. You have no control. You are in need of mercy and grace from him. So my call to you this morning is to say, come before God. Recognize your needs. Say, I need undeserved favor from him. The second category of people are those who are in Christ. Are you desperate or are you deserving? If you're in Christ and you claim to know Jesus, are you in the category of those who would be desperate and needy for grace or are you deserving of God's grace? Does this Psalm 6 feel so foreign to you? Have you lived a relatively good life? You've done all the good things, the right things, and you feel like you've earned God's um, patience and kindness? See, this morning, you, Christian, are in need of grace. You were in need of grace yesterday. You're in need of grace today. You'll be in need of grace tomorrow. And if you're not thinking that you are, you're deceiving yourself. You're overlooking some aspect of your life that isn't submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's none of us that will enter into the heavenly gates perfect. None of us that will come before God without any marks on our record, as it were. So the question is, are you desperate or deserving? I think David found himself desperate before God's throne. I want to take a moment and ask God to make us desperate. It's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? But I think it's something we want to do. The benefits of living desperately before God's throne is that we understand grace and mercy. Let's go to God in prayer now. Lord, we ask that you would make us desperate. Truthfully, in our sin, we should be desperate. Desperate for more grace desperate for more word from your scriptures, desperate for more conviction from the Spirit, desperate for more kindness from your throne. And yet so often, Lord, I find myself in a state of appeasement, state of distraction. So Lord, make us the people in need of your grace. Allow us to be men and women that are formed by our need before your throne. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.